once said, well, I'm really glad to be here. In fact, at this stage of my life, I'm glad to be anywhere. So I <laughs> haven't quite reached that yet, but uh, uh, it's really good to be with you and to see some that we've known 30, 40 years and to see you faithfully pursuing God and part of uh, this local church. Now, I always try and obey what I've been asked to do, and I've been asked to speak about the church today. And uh, I think very often uh, when we speak about the church, we tend to think of the church as the body of Christ. Of course, that's probably the dominant picture in our minds uh, with regards to the biblical description of the the church. But I'm actually going to talk today about the church as the bride of Christ, a term we often use but probably don't preach about so much. Now, we actually had the the first part of the reading earlier on, uh, (laughs) uh, Revelation chapter 19. uh, And I'm going to pick up at verse 6. Uh, of Revelation chapter 19. We had the opening verses read during the worship, Uh, so that was in the Spirit, obviously. And let's pick up at Revelation 19 and verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. Now I believe that it's very important we understand the church as the bride of Christ because this subject actually teaches us that we uh, can see that history is going in a definite direction and also that God's ultimate victory is certain. Now in terms of the immediate background of this passage which I've just read, It is actually an overspill from a description of the fall of Babylon. If you read chapters 17 and 18, uh, you read there that uh, Babylon, the city of Babylon, falls and that this is being celebrated. Uh, And it's celebrated in the opening verses of chapter 19, which we heard earlier. And uh, the fall of of Babylon is actually uh, one of these pictures that you get in the the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of pictures and metaphors. uh, And Babylon really stands, as we would understand it today, uh, for everything that really stands against Christ and his church. Worldly systems, worldly structures... Uh, that seem to be very powerful, but which oppose Christ and his church. And we're living in a day, surely, when, in that sense, Babylon seems to thrive. Uh, You know, worldly structures often seem to flourish, uh, and very often they have no submission to Christ, uh, certainly at least apathetic and often hostile to the things of God and to the Christian church. And in the midst of that, uh, the church is usually pretty well written off. 
so if you think of the media as representing a worldly structure, I think the media would often represent the church as old-fashioned, dying. Uh, it's uh, beginning now to say, you know, when the last Christian will be alive in England, just about. I mean, we're just about uh, written off uh, uh, by many worldly structures today, and particularly by the media. Uh, but friends, as we come to the Word of God, we see that actually is not the end of the story. And you and I, as believers, need to know the end. And the end is this, that Babylon will fall. <laughs> and that's what is being described here in these chapters in Revelation. And indeed, as Babylon falls, the church will be married to Christ. And so you have this picture of the church as the bride of Christ. And in these verses that I've just read, uh, celebrating the wedding supper of the Lamb amidst tumultuous celebrations. Now, we need today to embrace our future by faith because that will strengthen our resolve, it will sharpen our hope, and it will motivate us uh, when we're tempted to be distracted and when times are tough. And even on top of that, I want to say that I think to see the church as the bride of Christ is somehow to appreciate the grandeur and the majesty of the church. Uh, I think there should be a sense, actually, of wonder about us. And so I want to pick up this description of the church, and I want to say a few things about it. What do we need to say about the church as the bride of Christ? Well, I suggest the first thing we need to say is something about romance. So we're going to talk about romance, first of all. Um, and uh, if you're talking about brides, if you're talking about weddings, you're going to be talking about romance. And I want to suggest that the church as the bride of Christ is actually a story of the greatest romance in all history. And you get a flavor of this, actually, in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, if you know your Bibles, you'll know that Ephesians chapter 5 has this famous passage where Paul talks about Christ and the church, and at the same time, he talks about husbands and wives. And it's generally accepted that he is talking about both at the same time, but in this rather man-centered age in which we live, I would suggest that normally we tend to put the stress on the husbands and wives. And I just want to flick that here for a moment and actually put the emphasis the other way, and that is the description that we have here of the relationship between Christ and the church. So listen to it in Ephesians 5 and in verse 25, you know the passage, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now this is a description of the greatest romance in history, that Christ has chased his bride down through the centuries of history, always seeking to win her, always seeking to woo her to himself and to win her. You go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that the nation of Israel was often described as actually the wife of God, but always, without exception, as a faithless wife. And I suppose one of the clearest pictures of that is in the book of Hosea, uh, where Hosea is told to go and marry a prostitute, and she proves entirely unfaithful, and Hosea then goes after her and seeks to woo her and win her back. 
And that's a picture of Israel, uh, who was so often prostituted herself, the wife of God, and God was always seeking to woo her and win her back. But God doesn't give up, and so as we come into the New Testament, we see that Christ's attentions crystallize in the church. And uh, you read here in Ephesians 5 that Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. I love that. He didn't just give himself for the church. He gave himself up. Speaks of an entire commitment. He gave himself up for the church at Calvary, of course, to, to win the church to himself. It even goes on to say in these verses that we've just read in Ephesians 5 that he washes the church, which describes something of the care and attention that he lavishes upon the church. And it also says here, that he receives her as a radiant bride or a radiant church. I want you to see the description of this particularly in verse 27. If we, is, that, is that up there? Yes. To present uh, to himself, uh, Christ is presenting to himself a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. I want you to notice that, holy and blameless. We have the next uh, uh, slide up there, please. If you go to Ephesians 1, you'll see that in Ephesians 1 verse 4, it says, for he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So, what you're reading in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, is how God sees us. Because we're in Christ, we are holy and blameless. That's how God sees us. Now, the theological word for that is justification, that God actually declares that we are righteous. We're in Jesus Christ. He sees us in the righteousness of Christ. So, He sees us, therefore, as holy and blameless. But notice, that's also the description He gives of the church here. In Ephesians 5.27, he says the church is also holy and blameless. Now, I mention this, and I'm, I'm really seeking to emphasize, emphasize this for an important reason. There has been a suggestion over the years, and it's not been absent from New Frontiers churches, to be honest. There has been a suggestion that Christ cannot yet return because the church doesn't look like that. She doesn't look holy and blameless. She looks a bit wrinkled still, and she certainly doesn't look spotless and blameless and holy. And therefore, the suggestion is the church, uh, Jesus cannot yet return because the church doesn't yet look like this. Now, can I say that is wrong? It is a misunderstanding of justification. You see, let me make it personal again. If you were to die as a believer today, would you be accepted by God? And I hope you would say yes, and you would say something like this, I would be because God sees me in Christ. I'm covered with the righteousness of Christ. Okay, so he would accept me today. I'm in Christ, and God sees me holy and righteous. Friends, what is true of the Christian individually must be true of the church corporately, because the church is made up of individual believers. So to Jesus... The church always looked radiant. The church always looked holy and blameless because he died to make us like that and therefore to make the whole church like that. And he accomplished that at the cross. 
Let me put it to you by the way of an illustration. Uh, how does a bride look to the bridegroom on her wedding day? Well, I think probably the word the bridegroom would normally use is something like perfect. All right, so I, I conducted many weddings when I was uh, for 23, 24 years uh, at Church of Christ the King in Brighton. And uh, I was always, of course, when I was conducting a wedding at the front and the bridegroom was just in front of me, and I was always interested to see how the bridegroom would react when the bride appeared. I always used to watch this. And we had a kind of half balcony in our building, it was a big building, and a kind of half balcony. And what would tend to happen uh, is that the, the bride would climb up some steps that couldn't be seen inside the building, but she would climb up some steps and she would suddenly appear in this balcony. So it was quite always a, a dramatic appearance. So I used to watch the bridegroom. And uh, as the bride would suddenly appear on the, on the balcony, um, quite often there were tears, there were some gulps, you know, from uh, the bridegroom. It never happened to me, but I know one or two bridegrooms actually fainted, you know, when, uh, <laughs> at this particular uh, point. Uh, and, you know, the bridegroom would say, oh, and he'd watch, her, watch the bride coming to the front to join him. I mean, she just looked wonderful. She looked perfect. Now, if you were there, you're not the bridegroom, and to be honest, you could look on and say, no, I don't really understand what he sees in her, actually. <laughs> I mean, and, uh, and some of you are laughing because you've said that. Okay, so <laughs> And friends, you could look at the church like that, and you could say, well, what does Christ see in the church? I'll tell you what he sees in the church, a radiant bride. That's what he sees, holy and blameless. He's given up his life for the bride. So we say Christ loves the church, and we introduce this rather theological word, justification, but actually it's totally romantic because it means that we're covered in his righteousness. So that whenever Christ returns, whenever Christ returns, he will see and he will receive a radiant bride holy and blameless. He gave himself so that the church would be like this. And what I want you to realize today is what we look like to Christ. Because you could look at the church, you might even look at your church and say, what does Christ see in us? But actually what he sees is a people who are holy and blameless, covered with his righteousness, a radiant church. Let's move on to, to celebration. That's the next main point I want to bring out of this. And uh, because th this happens, the, the wedding supper of the Lamb, at the time of the second coming of Christ, I just want to observe here that uh, I do think it's important that we continue to preach the second coming of Christ. I, I travel to so many New Frontiers churches, I often ask about preaching on the second coming of Christ, and I feel it's dying out of our churches. And I think this is so important as a teaching, as a doctrine. We, we must keep teaching the second coming of Christ. We, we mustn't say, well, it's, you know, a bit difficult or a bit confusing. We must come back again and again to this central point that Christ is going to return in majesty and power and glory. And as, uh, as he does so, note the shouts of celebration here, which introduce the wedding supper uh, of the Lamb 
and the bride of Christ. It's there in verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the, our Lord God Almighty reigns. Now the Bible is full of hallelujahs, isn't it? Actually, it's not, surprisingly. Now this will be something that some of you will not know. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word hallelujah appears. And that often surprises people. They think, oh, the Bible's full of hallelujahs. You get a lot in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, the only place that the word hallelujah appears is actually reserved for the fall of Babylon and for the celebration of the church as the bride. The wedding of the Lamb has come. So we're talking about celebration here. Hallelujahs. How do you have a real celebration? Well, I would suggest that normally you probably have a real celebration with a meal, <laughs> right? That's so often the way that we celebrate. And of course, when it comes to weddings, that is particularly true, that we tend to have a meal. I'm just going to observe here that I am somewhat nervous these days, that there is a worldly spirit coming into the church that is almost competitive, that actually you've got to have a more and more extravagant wedding than the last wedding that you went to, and the expenses grow, and I think it can become ridiculous at times. I've actually ministered into cultures where they actually ruin themselves to play, sorry, to pay for a wedding day, right? You know, families ruin themselves, they get into huge debt to pay just for this one day of the wedding. But we know that uh, uh, at a wedding we do tend to eat together, and that is a mark of the, the celebration. I've noticed that uh, when we have our, our Bible weekends uh, with our particular group of churches, we, we go down to West Point, which is the Exeter showground. We go down at the end of August, and uh, every ch church that's there seems to say, well, uh, Saturday afternoon or Sunday afternoon, we'll have, a, we'll have a celebration together, and it's always around burgers, right? You kind of, a, uh, uh, kind of have a meal together in some way. I actually try and trade on this a bit. I usually walk through the campsite during those times, and, and they say, we've got Tesco's finest burgers. They, you know, they, <laughs> and uh, uh, last year, I think it was, one of the churches says, we're actually doing scones, scones and cream. You know, come and join us. I mean, there's a, uh, a real sense of celebration about it, and uh, that's true even, of course, of uh, breaking of bread, which we've done this morning. Um, uh, Steve brought that out, really. It's uh, a time of celebration because we're having a family meal together. And sometimes in the past, the church has thought that communion ought to be very somber. Can I say, it needs to be serious in one sense, because we do remember the Lord's death, but also at the same time, it should be full of joy, because we're celebrating the achievements of the cross and of the fact that we're doing this only until Jesus comes again. Now, this is particularly true for the church at the end of history. We're going to celebrate in the wedding supper of the Lamb. That will replace the communion service, okay? We're going to celebrate in the wedding supper of the Lamb. And after all the hardships of the present life, when often Babylon has seemed powerful and strong, but now Babylon has fallen. The church is joined to Christ and we celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. I've often wondered in recent years whether the church as the bride of Christ is much more meaningful to the persecuted church than it is to us. 
Let's be honest, we still have it pretty easy. I know that legislation is moving against us, um, and I'm not suggesting it's as easy as it was even when I began my ministry. I think things have become more difficult. But on the whole, when you compare ourselves to so much of the body of Christ throughout the world, uh, we, we have a bit of opposition, but really we still have it pretty easy. We're free to meet here. Uh, on a Sunday morning. Nobody's kind of coming in to photograph us or take note of, of who's here. Well, Steve takes note of who's not here, but I mean, you know, <laughs> um, you know we, we, we meet here with, with freedom to do so. But many believers, as you know, they, they're living right on the edge today, really on the edge. And Babylon might seem to triumph. Babylon might seem to be so powerful. Babylon might seem to be in control. But the persecuted church knows that the church is the bride of Christ. That Babylon will fall and the celebrations will begin for all trials will be over. The marriage supper of the Lamb will mark the climax of history. Now even for us as individuals, some of us can be going through very hard times. And some of you may be doing that at the present time. Life may be really tough for you at the present time really difficult, really challenging. What you need to get hold of here this morning out of this passage of Scripture, yes, but you belong to the bride of Christ and that your life will not end in despair, but it will end in celebration and in the, we the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, one of the questions that I'm often asked in connection with this is, will we literally eat together at the wedding supper of the Lamb? And people will usually, well, quite often say something like this, the book of Revelation is a book full of metaphors and pictures, so surely the wedding supper, it's a, it's a metaphor of, of happiness and celebration, but surely we won't literally uh, eat together. It must surely be just picture language. Uh, over the years, Sue and I have traveled a great deal to Dubai, where we actually have a very big and very flourishing church. And uh, when we've gone to Dubai, uh, I've always been overjoyed at the kind of multicultural nature of the church there. And one day, I, I picked this issue up with the church in Dubai. And I said, what do you think about uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb? Uh, supposing I said you were in, in invited to uh, a wedding and uh, you, you, you turned up at the wedding and you had the, the wedding service and you've been invited to the reception afterwards, but after the, the wedding service has taken place, the best man stands up and what he says is this, well, I'm, we're so glad you came today to celebrate this great occasion, to be here for this very happy wedding. I just need to tell you that though you have been invited to the reception, it's a, actually a metaphorical reception and uh, there isn't actually any food. And I said to the church, I said, how would you react? And I said, I think you would react according to your nationality and culture. So uh, there's always some Brits in the church in Dubai, so I said, you, you come from British background, how would you react? I said, I know what you'd do, you'd moan, all right, all right. Oh, isn't that typical, you know, I blame the government, austerity and all that, you know, obviously. You know, that's why we haven't got a, anything to eat. So you'd moan about it. And then there's always South Africans in the church in Dubai, and I said, how would you react? Well, if you know South Africans, you'll be able to relate to this. What you South Africans would do is to get together and say, we'll make a plan. Because that's what South Africans always do. They're always going to make a plan. So I said, that's what you would do. Now, the church has a lot of Indians in it. 
So I said, what about you Indians? I said, how would you react to it? I said, I know what you do. You get the wedding service sheet and you set fire to it, you throw it in the air and have a riot because that's what Indians do. I mean, you, <laughs> you look at their cricket matches, that's how they go on. All right. And then I said, what about you Filipinos? Because a lot of Filipinos in the church and they're so different to the Indians. They're so sort of tactile and gentle. I said, how would you react? I said, I know what you do. You'd hold hands and sing to one another. Uh, and they love this, you see, uh, because I was seeking to describe the different reactions that there are in different nations and cultures. But I think whatever your nationality, whatever your culture, if actually you were told that the reception was actually metaphorical, you'd be pretty fed up, however you reacted to it. Friends, we are going to celebrate the wedding supper of the Lamb. Will it be an actual meal? I'll tell you this, it will be real perhaps rather better than a meal as we understand it now. Let's not be bland about heaven. I've been preaching this for years about let's not be bland about heaven. I think, you know, we have this kind of funny idea that we're going to be up there, out there somewhere, sitting on a fluffy cloud with a guitar on a kind of endless bank holiday Monday. You know, that's, that's how it's going to be. All right. But actually, heaven is the reality. Heaven is the solid. All right. And... Uh, what we enjoy and appreciate now as gifts of God, I mean, multiply it a millionfold. Right? It's going to be heaven. Right. So the days will come when Babylon will fall and there'll be no more persecution. Worldly systems and structures will collapse and Jesus, the Lamb of God, will celebrate with his bride, the church. I wonder what you're going to go into this week. You know, what you walk into your family life, work life, tough time, difficult time, challenges, just remember that we're moving towards the celebration, sort of wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, thirdly, I want to go to preparation, right? So we go from celebration down to preparation. And I want to raise a question here, which is this. When are we the bride of Christ? Are we the bride of Christ now, or are we the bride of Christ in the future? And at this point, it may be helpful to point out that in Bible times, weddings took place within a different culture to the, the weddings that, that we know. And uh, this is perfectly illustrated for us, actually, in the relationship between Mary and Joseph. Now, if you never had this pointed out to you clearly, I'll try and do this uh, about the cultural difference. If you go to Matthew chapter uh, 1 and uh, to verse 18, this is what we read. Now, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, the NIV, which I'm reading here, says that Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. The Greek word is actually betrothal. She was betrothed to Joseph. And a betrothal was a legally binding situation. It's so much stronger than our engagement. If you were betrothed, you were legally bound uh, to one another. 
But, it says here, they had not yet come together, they had not yet had any sexual relationship together, uh, and uh, because they were betrothed, they were definitely going to be married, but they had not yet come together. Nevertheless, Mary is pregnant by a miracle of the work of the Holy Spirit, and it says that Joseph, because of her pregnancy, decides to divorce her. And you could say, well, how could he divorce her when they actually weren't even married? It's a different culture. If you were betrothed, you could only break betrothal by a bill of divorce. Right? So it was a very different situation to what we know at the present time. But bring that to Christ and the church, and you can make out a good case for saying that the church presently is betrothed to Jesus Christ and will become the bride at the end of history. Now, there are various verses that would seem to back that up. So if you, you come to Revelation 19 and verse 7 here, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Okay, so the wedding seems to be here, right at the end of history. Now it's the wedding of the Lamb. Uh, if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, the Apostle Paul has an interesting comment to the church, church there. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you, and the, way, the word is again betrothed, I promised you to, or I betrothed you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. So Paul says, I've betrothed you to Christ, so that actually you may become his bride. You know, that I'll present you as a pure virgin to him, but you're betrothed to Jesus Christ. And then if you come back to Revelation, and to chapter 21, and verse 1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the, <coughs> for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for a husband. So this is John seeing a vision of the very end of history. And the vision he gets is this very strange picture. We're probably so familiar with it, it no longer strikes us as strange. But it's a vision of a city dressed as a bride, which is a pretty strange picture, you come to think about it. I mean, talk about here comes the bride all fat and wide. I mean, here you've got it, haven't you? So you've got the, 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 the church described as a, as a city, but dressed as a bride, and coming down um, prepared for her husband. So again, we're at the end of history. Now, you run all those verses together, you get all your theological and biblical ducks in a row. The church is betrothed to Jesus Christ, and we will become the bride at the climax of the ages when we celebrate the wedding supper. Except there's a problem, which is, you go to Revelation 22 and verse 17, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. And that's us now. Right. That's the church now. And we're saying, come, Lord Jesus. <coughs> so what are we going to do? Well, I would suggest it's like this. That actually, we are already the bride, and we will become the bride. Now, if you struggle with that, let me tell you, that's not the only place where that happens in the Bible. <coughs> if you go to Romans chapter 8, and to one of the very famous verses of chapter 8, those he predestined, 
Verse 30, he called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. All past tense. So I'm looking at the people this morning whom God predestined. At some point in the past, God predestined you. He called you. There was a, a time when you received the gospel and believed. It was in the past. It doesn't matter whether it is 80 years ago or 10 minutes ago. At some point in the past, he called you. And then he justified you. He declared you righteous. It's all happened in the past. And then it says, he also glorified you. Also past tense. Now, I'm looking at you this morning, and uh, I'm trying, but it's difficult for me to say you look glorified, all right? <laughs> Some of you look exhaustified. <laughs> Some of you look mystified, but none of you look glorified, all right? <laughs> but Paul says that if we are protesting, called, justified, we've also been glorified. Now, Bible teachers will always tell you that the way you understand that is because we have been predestined, called, and justified in the past, it is so totally, 100%, absolutely certain that we will be glorified that we can speak of it as though it's happened. And I would suggest it's like that with the church. We are the bride of Christ, but we will be the bride of Christ. Both are true. Now, at this point, something odd happens. I'm going to ask you just to follow me closely here for a couple of minutes. We're drawing towards an end, but there's something a bit odd that happens. Because if you go to verses 7 and 8, we read, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. And if you're observant, you might say to me, but just a minute, John, you've already said that the, Jesus sees his church as perfect now, a radiant bride. Right? He sees her like that already, holy and blameless. Now, we're suddenly reading verses 7 and 8, and it looks as though the church has still got to do something. She's still got to make herself ready. And this seems to be a contradiction. And I'm going to unravel this for you very, very briefly with an explanation, a translation, illustration, and a confirmation. Okay, here's the explanation, and these have come up on the board. It's the state, the explanation is, it's the state of grace we are in. All right, that's what's being described here. These verses go on to say about holding the testimony of Jesus. As a church, we hold the testimony of Jesus by our repentance and faith and the good works that follow from faith, the church has made herself ready. Right? It's the state of grace we are already in. The translation is this. In verse 8 in the NIV, it says, Fine linen, bright and clean, were given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The ESV is better. It says it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In other words, because of grace, as we do righteous deeds as the church, it's as though we're able to put on fine linen even now as a reward. If you like, we can dress up for the wedding because of our righteous deeds. 
But it's the illustration that I hope that will make this absolutely clear. We go to the illustration. Right. Why does a bride make such an effort on her wedding day? And let me, let's be very clear about this. It is not so the bridegroom will accept her. It's not that. It is actually because the bride knows that she's already accepted and loved. That's why she gets ready for the wedding day. It's not so that she'll be acceptable to the bridegroom. It's the opposite. She knows she's accepted. She knows she's loved. And because she knows she's accepted, and because she knows she's loved, she wants to be her best for the wedding day. Now, she could turn up in jeans and a purple balaclava, and the bridegroom would still accept her, all right? Because he has. He loves her. That's why he wants to marry her. He's already accepted her. But because of that love and acceptance, you know what brides do? They become fanatics, all right, for the wedding day. Now, I have got six granddaughters, all right, and uh, the oldest one is now 16. We are heading towards possibilities that I could see these granddaughters of mine being, actually, I've got immigration papers ready, okay, because <laughs> I know what it's going to be like. The thought of six granddaughters preparing for their wedding days, especially my granddaughters preparing for their wedding days, all right, but that's a bride, all right, because she knows she's accepted, because she's loved, what she do, she prepares fanatically for the wedding day. And here's the confirmation, and by this I mean a biblical confirmation. In Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Work out your own salvation, because God is at work in you to do and to will, to act to his good pleasure. All right, so God has worked salvation into us, we work it out. God works it in, we work it out. True for us individually, true for the church corporately. So church, Beacon Church, Home Bay, what I'm saying to you is this. Let this church be the very best it can be for the wedding. All right? Not because that's the way to get acceptance, because you're already accepted. Right? You're already loved, already accepted. And on the basis of that, let's be the very best we can be for the wedding day, corporately. Let's work out the salvation that our Saviour has worked in. There's one more verse I'd like to share with you before I finish, and that's in uh, chapter 21 here of Revelation and verse 9. And uh, here we read, One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. I just so love that verse. Do you feel the, you see the pride, this mighty angel that says, come, I want to show you the bride. I want to so, show you the church, the wife of the Lamb. I wonder how you see the church. You sometimes feel, oh gosh, we're just overwhelmed by all that's going on today. How do you see this church? You feel, oh, well, I'm pleased to be here, but, you know, are we going to break through more? You know, we seem to not make the impact that we'd want to make. We don't see what we want to see. And you can look at the church generally, you can look at your church, and you can feel a bit down about it. I want you to see how the church is seen in heaven. See the pride of this mighty angel. Look at the bride. 
Look at the church, the wife of the Lamb. Uh, we, when I was in Brighton, there was a lady I was speaking to who worked in a bridal gown shop. And uh, she said, obviously, you know, she had a lot of, uh, usually, not always, usually younger ladies come in and try on these lovely bridal gowns. And uh, I said to her, I said, how do you find the, the mothers when they come in with their daughters? Do they get very emotional? And she said to me, it's not the mothers, she said, it's the fathers. <laughs> she, she says, the daughter puts on a bridal gown and, and the, the father just completely breaks up, you know, kind of looks the other direction and gets all soppy and silly. And uh, she says, the fathers, you know, the, the pride as they look at their daughter dressed up as a bride. And church, see the pride of the angel in the beauty of the church. We're the bride of Christ. We're the wife of the Lamb. It's fantastic to really get hold of that. So, the bride of Christ, the wonder of it, the majesty of it, such a romance. Christ gave himself up to woo us and to win us. Celebrations are going to come. Hold on in tough times. We're going to move towards the wedding supper of the Lamb. And let's prepare for that final day because we're accepted to be the very best that we can be for the wedding. Hallelujah. <laughs> let's stand together, can we? <laughs>